morning. Let's pray. Father, this is your house and we are your people. We are your house and we are your people. And we ask you, Father, to come, you who are here, as you filled the temple, so fill us with your truth and with your spirit. Warn us, Lord, this is a warning text. And so I pray that we would have hearts that are so docile to your spirit that we are willing and eager to receive every word of God and to accept this warning that we are alert, that we would be alert for false teachers and their influence in our lives. Sometimes we don't know that we are being influenced when indeed we are. So I pray, Father, that you would protect us and use your church body as we speak the truth in love and minister to one another, that we would protect one another and secure in us the the great rich truths of the Word of God, especially the gospel, so that we will be all that you want us to be for your glory and for our own joy. We thank you, Father, for this hour, and we pray that you would bless it in ways that we hardly know how even to ask. I do pray, Father, if there are any among us who are confident that they are children of God and they are not, May this morning be the day when your spirit quickens them. And I pray equally, Father, as much as I'm concerned about that group, I'm concerned about another group who perhaps does belong to you, and yet they doubt. Oh, Father, would you secure in them a confidence that they belong to you and that they belong to you not because They've been good or faithful or righteous, but because you have been so gracious to them. Confirm that in them, Father, we pray. Thank you for this text and for your people here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we kind of launched into a short series of messages on what Paul calls the last days. And as we saw last week, when the Bible authors talk about the last days, they're speaking about that period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And that means that the entirety of church history, can you believe it? The entirety of church history has been in the last days. Now, If you weren't here last week, let me assure you that Paul's objective here is not to take us into a deep course or study of eschatology, but to simply warn Timothy about a particular danger that is endemic in the church in the last days. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, we are in 2 Timothy, by the way, we'll read the text in a minute, but in verse 1 he says, in the last days they were come there will come times, that is, seasons, or epics, or, and this is more analogous, waves of difficulty. And the cause of these difficult, difficult days is the influence of false teachers upon the church. These teachers whose heretical doctrine provokes people in the church to become Lovers of self, lovers of money, and proud, just to mention three of the 18 descriptors of these teachers and those who follow them. In the previous message, I offered a list of general waves of false teaching that have come through the church over the centuries. One of them was sacramentalism, another, and I won't unpack these today, but another is rationalism. Just think Thomas, uh, no, no, what's his name, Paine. What? Thomas Paine, that's his name. Uh, Thomas Paine, uh, mysticism uh, in so many different ways, not only from the cults, but even has been brought into the church. Pragmatism, evolution, psychology, all of which have found their way into the church to various degrees and into our hearts in various degrees. To be sure, these general waves of false teaching are still with us. They don't go away. They 
They come into the church, and the church just kind of accumulates it. And yes, they, they tend to fade some, but, but the church then is stained by it, and pockets of it still exist here and there. But there are also some very specific forms of false teaching that have also swept through the Protestant, evangelical, and even, to some degree, Reformed churches in recent decades. For example, believers in my lifetime have witnessed the influence of false teachers such as, dare I name names, Robert Schuller and his power of positive thinking, false doctrine. Jim and Tammy Baker and Jimmy Swaggart and others who deceived and robbed the church by their health, wealth, false doctrine. And, and that's, those are, I mean, I'm reaching back for those, but, but there, are, there are hundreds of such false teachers. In more recent years, the church has been confused and conflicted over what has been called the new antinomianism, led by men like Tullian Trevigian and others who identify as conservative, reformed uh, uh, evangelicals. And today, the church is being deluged by teaching on social justice in some cases in such a way that redefines the gospel. And it's not right, it is false. And beloved, what Paul is doing is saying, Timothy, be careful. Church of Ephesus, be careful. Church of Calvary Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas, be careful. Paul's concerned about these things. He knows that he's about to die, and he wants to make sure Timothy, who's going to take over for him, is clear on his duty to stand against the waves of false teaching as they come to inflict harm upon the church. But specifically, we can ask, how does a faithful pastor or a faithful Christian stand against the influence of false teaching? Well, Paul offers six clarifying instructions. Six clarifying instructions that prepare us for ministry in these last days. But before we unpack the passage, let's take a minute to stand together and do what we always do. Let's stand and read God's wonderful word. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. But understand this, Paul writes, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women bur burdened with sins and led away by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupt in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those men. You, however, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned them, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. Now you notice I stopped before verse 16 because I don't want to water that down because of lack of time. So we'll hit that, Lord willing, next week or the week after. In verses 1 through 5, Paul again offers 18 characteristics of those who have succumbed to false teaching. And by the way, this is also a description of these false teachers in their day. Moreover, as we'll see later in this passage, they describe these men in significant detail. This is not the first time Paul has talked about these men, and it will not be the last. And we might summarize this list by saying that such people are characterized by love of self and all of its various manifestations. In other words, love of self is the root. And then there are many fruits that come out of a love of self, priority of self, magnifying self. And by having a, not only love of self, but by having a form of godliness, but denying its power to bring about real change. That's what the power is for. The power is to change the hearts of men and women and children. Sin and righteousness are always a matter of the heart. Salvation is always a matter of the heart. It's not about your feelings, but it's about a change that God creates in your soul. It's like heart surgery. It's like a heart transplant, a spiritual heart transplant. It's exactly how Ezekiel described it in Ezekiel 36. It's important for pastors and their people to expect this kind of general apostasy. Otherwise, when a minister of the gospel or a faithful Christian discovers that people are not as responsive to their ministry of the word as they imagine they should be, they may be tempted to tweak the biblical message and method of the gospel ministry to entice people to respond who wouldn't otherwise respond. But that would be a tremendous error indeed. It has been a devastating error in the church for the last three decades at least. Remember the story of Luke 16? The rich man, Lazarus, the poor man. When the rich man died and he went to hell, he cried out to, the way Jesus describes it, he cried out to Father Abraham. And he said a few things. I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but he said to Father Abraham, would you please send someone back from the dead to tell my brothers that there is judgment, that this place is real. And Abraham said to him, listen carefully, Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. If they are unwilling to listen to Moses and the prophets, which means what? Old Testament scripture. If they're unwilling to listen, to obey, to believe Old Testament scripture, then they will not believe even if someone is raised from the dead. You know, the amazing thing is in John chapter 11, a man by the name of Lazarus was raised from the dead. Jesus raised him from the dead. And you know what they said? They didn't say, oh, he is the Messiah. The Pharisees said, kill him. And Lazarus, kill him again. Make him dead again. Even if a man is raised from the dead, they will not believe. They have the word of God. This is, this is what we get. We get scripture. We get the Bible. We get God's revealed word. The faithful minister's job then is to proclaim God's word in God's way, without regard for how people respond. That doesn't mean we don't try. That doesn't mean we don't salt the oats a little bit. That doesn't mean we don't get on their territory. That doesn't mean we try again and again and again. It doesn't mean we don't do that. But it does mean we have to leave the results to God. We can't save anyone. And so the faithful minister's job is merely to proclaim, the, proclaim God's word and get the message right. So the first instruction is this, expect, expect a general apostasy. Now that was last week, let's move on here. 
verses 6 through 8, here's the second instruction. Be alert for deceivers. Be alert to deceivers. From the end of verse 5 through verse 8, Paul teaches how to respond to false teachers and reveals their tactics so Timothy will be alert to their schemes. It's almost as if Paul has gotten the playbook of his opponent, of our opponents, and he is opening it up to us in order to give us the advantage, put the advantage in our favor. And so he's, he's, he's about to tell us what to watch out for. Now notice first how Paul wants us to relate to professing believers who teach and live in a way that is clearly contrary to biblical teaching and morality. And by the way, so often, as is with the case with some that I, whose names I mentioned today, it is so common that when their doctrine is bad, so is their morality. They go hand in hand. There is a difference sometimes between one's formal theology and one's functional theology. Everyone has a functional theology. By that I mean you are operating, you are living by what you believe. But you can live like that, contrary to Scripture, and claim that you believe everything in, in Calvary Bible Church's doctrinal statement. Or believe the Apostles' Creed or believe any of the creeds. In fact, Paul at the end of his life declared, avoid such people. Avoid such people, and this is why. Don't sit under his teaching. Shun them. Get away from them. Don't buy their books. Don't sit under their teaching. Don't go to their conferences. Don't read his posts, his tweets, blogs, Snapchats, or whatever else. I don't know. Any other mode of communication that I've missed. Avoid them. And tell your people to stay clear of them as well. Now, beloved, I understand that you're probably not getting warm fuzzies and, and positive feelings from this message. It doesn't matter to me. It's not my job to make you feel good about what God says. It's only my job to tell you what he says. Now, some tender soul may say, this sounds unloving. That feels divisive. It's so, it just feels legalistic. Well, remember this, my friends. As John Stone Street often says, all ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have victims. All ideas, that means all doctrine, all ideas, all ideas have consequences. And bad ideas have victims. And Paul's concerned about all the people in the church who are in danger of being victimized by these false teachings and those who teach them. Some of those victims will turn away from the gospel, shipwrecking their faith on the hidden reefs of a works-based righteousness. And others will shipwreck on the shoals of licentious living or antinomianism. Antinomianism simply means without law, lawlessness, under the guise of personal liberty. And they shipwreck their faith. Oh, beloved, listen to me. False teaching is a serious danger to the church and to your own soul and to your children, especially as they grow into their teenage and college years. False teaching is serious business. And the most loving thing that a shepherd can do for his flock is to lead them away from such danger and guide them into green pastures and quiet waters of the truth. And I would just say to you, if, if this just hits you and, and, and you don't like hearing messages like this, can I, can I just present it to you in a more, maybe a more gracious way? In fact, let me let the Bible present it in a way that may sound a little more gracious. I believe it was David. Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked, nor stands, that means 
You're hanging out with them. You're reading their stuff. You're going to their conferences. Nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And you know what he'll be like? He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither. Even in the Texas heat, his leaf doesn't wither. And all that he does prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff which the wind drives away. And the Lord inspired more in that text. You know, what, you know what chaff is? Some of you don't know what chaff is. If you've ever seen a combine um, harvesting wheat, you'll see a big cloud of dust behind it. It's not dirt from the wheels. It's the chaff. It's, it's all the parts of the stalk of the wheat that is no good for eating. And it gets ejected out of the back of the combine. Or back in, in Paul's day, they would, they would mound up all the wheat and they would toss it into the air. And as the wind blew, it blew away the chaff. It's light. It's, 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 it's hollow. It's worthless. And David is saying, the wicked are like that. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Oh, beloved, all of Scripture sounds this same warning. It gives a clarion call to listen to the wisdom of the Father for his glory, for your own protection and joy. And by the way, this is why we're so vigilant about, and discriminating about what goes into the church library and bookstore. Uh, at one time was perusing the library, the, the old library that used to be down the hall, and I found a copy in there of uh, Rabbi Kushner's Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. And uh, it's heretical. I mean, it's not even a question whether it's heretical. Um, I'm not sure how it got in there. And it's also why when someone wants to offer a box of books to donate to the library, we always ask a question. And here's the question. What would you like us to do with the books that, that, that we're not going to use in the library? Because we may not use them all. Um, there are some books that that we don't want to encourage you to read because it's false. Because it's false. And so you see, my friends, as Christians already know, ideas matter. Truth matters. False teaching matters. And so Paul requires faithful ministers to respond appropriately and decisively to false teaching. And so he says, avoid them. Avoid them. He tells Titus something even more. He says, Refute sound doctrine. No, no, no. Teach sound doctrine. And, yeah. <laughs> false teacher. <laughs> Proclaim false, real doctrine. False doctrine, real doctrine. <laughs> this is easy for me to say. And refute those who contradict. Refute those who contradict. My kids are going to have fun with that later today. <laughs> And we get a much clearer picture of the danger false teaching brings to the church when we read about their strategy to proselytize and get people to join them in their error. Look at verses 6 and 7. He writes, Paul writes, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sin and led astray by various passions, always learning never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, among those who have embraced false teaching are some, some of that very, very large group, some of them become downright evangelistic about it. They have heard false teaching, they have embraced false, teach, false teaching, and now they're teaching. They go out of their way to entice others to join them in their error. How do they do it? What's their strategy? Paul says they creep. These are the original creepers. They creep, or more literally, they worm their way into houses and take advantage of the vulnerable. In Paul's words, 
They capture weak women. Paul pictures this as almost a military operation. To capture means to take captive, to gain control over, to make a prisoner of, such as a prisoner of war. And notice whom they're they're taking captive. Paul calls them not, not just weak women. He calls them literally little women. He's not speaking about all women, but rather those who are weak-minded. Little women is a, a term they would use of a, a term of contempt for certain women who were idle, silly, and undiscerning, and yet religious. They were also women who were full of guilt due to personal sin, I suppose. Paul says, notice, they are burdened down with sins and led away by various passions. And since they were presumably not dealing with their guilt, their sin, in a biblical manner, their consciences were susceptible to teaching that appeals to their lusts and illegitimately relieves them of their guilt. And I would dare say, in our modern America, in this culture, maybe six out of ten churches have ways to relieve you of your guilt that is not inherent in the gospel. The word passions here is often translated Lusts means strong desires, literally. James, when he uses it in a negative way, as he does in James chapter 4, when he's talking about why we fight, why we, why we get angry at each other, he says, isn't it this, that your passions rule you? You desire and do you do not have, so you commit murder in your heart. They're weighed down with these passions. They're led astray by the passions, the lusts of their heart. These women were in the church, but they were not godly women. They had a form. They had a form of godliness. They had a morphosis, a shell, a facade of religion, but no intention of humbling themselves, repenting of their sins, and following Christ in truth. You know, the church can give you all kinds of stuff, you can get things out of the church that are not the gospel. You can get things that feed something in you and makes you feel good that is not the Bible and not the Spirit. You can be in Calvary Bible Church right now and, and here for the wrong reason. Here for the wrong reason. It's likely these were wealthy society women in our day, this would be those women in particular who sit at home and I guess when I was a kid, it was watching soap operas. They, they, they must still be on. <laughs> or they waste their time on social media. They're not striving to grow in the knowledge of God. They have a form of godliness, and I'm not, please don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that you shouldn't use social media. I'm just saying, be careful. How are you using your time? Are you really feeding your soul? They have a form of godliness without any real spiritual substance. Furthermore, these were women who wanted to be taught, or they wanted, they wanted people to think about them as being educated. They were constantly being taught. They carried what I, I used to call a theological pail. You've got a little bit of Benny, Benny Hen that you throw in there, a little... Billy Graham, little John MacArthur, little Robert Schuller, um, little Hank Hanegraaff, uh, a little of Dan Kirk, a lot of Keith. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't realize that what you're carrying around in your, in your pail, um, it, it should explode. It should explode due to the friction between what those individuals are teaching. There's no discernment. They just love religious things, all things religious. They love to hear sermons, especially if it's teaching something new. John R.W. Stott observes, 
And John R. W. Stott is with the Lord, who's an Anglican bishop, remained single his whole life, dedicated himself to the Lord. Here's what he said. They were the kind of women who would listen to anybody. At the same time, they would never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Constitutionally incapable of reaching any settled convictions, they were like little boats tossed here and there by the storm, as mentioned in Ephesians 4. In such a state of mental confusion, people will listen to any teacher, however specious. It was no love of truth that impelled them to learn, however, but only morbid love of novelty. Such women, weak in character and intellect, are an easy prey for door-to-door religious salesmen. And they are legion. Now, I think this would be a really good place for me to say something on the side. This would be an excellent time for me to say on behalf of all the men at Calvary Bible Church that we praise God for the many gifted, discerning, theologically minded, modest, morally pure, female Jesus lovers that he has given to Calvary Bible Church. And there are many of them. I heard about the ladies' event yesterday, and the stories I heard were wonderful. Thank you, ladies. Over the years, I have known of many occasions when false teaching or sinful controversy had been averted by the wise intervention of a spirit-filled, scripture-saturated woman in this church body. And some of you have known the Lord longer than I've been alive. I'm looking at you, Marge. <laughs> and others have proven themselves wise and godly beyond their years. We are unspeakably blessed to have you as sisters in Christ in this local church. And your faithful ministry to the rest of us has been incalculably precious to us. We praise God for you. We praise God for you. Well, in the next verse, verse 8, Paul switches back from the vulnerable women who were being taken advantage of because of their own foolishness and sin, to the men who were Paul's primary concern. Again, back to verse 8. Verse 8 reads, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Here, Paul offers an example of what false teachers are like. They're like Janus and Jambres. You, you, probably have heard of them, right? Maybe not. They're not anywhere in the Bible. They're never, their names are never used in Scripture, but they're all over Jewish tradition. As it, whenever they talk about the Exodus and Moses' conflict with Pharaoh, Janus and his brother Jambres were also, they were said to be Pharaoh's magicians who opposed Moses in Exodus chapter 7. Paul's point here is that Janus and Jambres resisted Moses. Listen, listen carefully. They resisted Moses by attempting to imitate his miracles, thus neutralizing the evidence that he was sent from God. In like manner, these false teachers in Paul's day opposed Paul's ministry of the biblical gospel. They tried to do things that watered down or mimicked what the apostles were doing to demonstrate that they were truly from God. And how did they do it? They did it by setting up similar claims to that of the apostles. Paul refers to them at some point as super apostles. That's what they thought of themselves. By pretending to have a, as much authority as the apostles had. And by thus neutralizing the claims of the true revelation of God and leaving, leading off weak-minded persons, not just women, 
leading them away from the gospel. This is often the most dangerous kind of opposition that's made against the true church. If you've ever been to a, a third world country and met people who have been taken in by the health, wealth, gospel, poor people who don't have any, any better standing in life now that they've gotten hooked up with these charlatans, they're no better off, and yet they cling to a false hope that wrecks them. Instead of using money for their own families or using them to glorify God in some other way, they, they give it to some false teacher, hoping they will become rich. This is often the most dangerous kind of opposition, this kind of teaching. And it's not just getting rich. It's all kinds of things that can be appealed to. We can, un we can release you from your burden of guilt. Do it without the gospel. Well, men like this always present themselves as superior in intellect and spiritual maturity. But Paul sees right through them. They are, in fact, men of corrupted minds. Corrupt means ruined, depraved, perverted. They may look good on the outside, but they are utterly corrupt. And in God's eyes, they are disqualified. Their faith is unapproved by God and is worthless in God's sight. God's sight. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are clouds without water. They are hidden reefs, as Jude will say, in your love feasts. And by the way, the faith, as it's called here, in the New Testament always refers to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And they are disqualified from it. They don't get it. They don't have it. And how is a minister to be faithful in these last days? Well, first, he expects a general apostasy. Second, he remains alert for deceivers. And then third, he rests in a sovereign promise. And it's not explicit here. It's more implicit and inferred. But it's very biblical. Look at verse 9. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those men. Of course, the villains in the church may win the day for a little while. They may make some progress, even cause significant harm, lead people astray. But in the end, they will be exposed for what they truly are. Janus and Jambres ultimately could not match Moses' signs. They eventually had to give in and tell Pharaoh, we can't do that. We can't do that. And they were ex exposed for the deceivers, the tricksters that they were. The, the word literally means jugglers. It's kind of a shell game they were playing. And in Paul's day, God would also confound this heretical movement in its own time. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, he wrote, 1 Timothy 5.24, he says, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. In other words, put it the way I like to say it, time and truth go hand in hand. Given enough time, the truth will come out. And until then, we oppose it, we expose it, we warn the body about it. The wise, a wise man once said, there is something patently spurious about heresy, and there is something self-evidently true about truth. Error may spread and be popular for a time, but it will not get very far, not in God's eyes. In the end, it is bound to be exposed, and the truth is sure to be vindicated. This is the clear lesson, by the way, from church history. We need some more examples. Try these on. Where is the false teaching of open theism, which is said to have been the most significant controversy about the doctrine of God in evangelical thought in the 20th century? It was all the rage in the 1990s. And it is, for all intents and purposes, been relegated to the ash heap of church history. 
And where is the emergent church and its false teacher, Rob Bell? That movement was all the rage in the U.S. just a decade ago. It is all but completely dissolved. Their foolishness has been exposed. It doesn't mean he's not still teaching, but hardly anyone comparatively is listening to him anymore. Where is the false teaching of Harold Camping, former president of Family Radio Network, who predicted that the second coming of Christ would happen on May 21st, 2011, and who called all Christians everywhere to leave their churches and prepare for the end? They spent millions and millions and millions of dollars on signs, both stationary and mobile, billboards, plastered on trucks all over the country, telling everyone, prepare for May 21st, 2011, and if you're a Christian, get out of that church. When Christ didn't come, even the mainstream media declared him to be a false prophet. We didn't need the mainstream media for that. God's people knew from the beginning. We're warned. And in all fairness to him, he did come back around and say, what I did was wrong. I should never have gone there. The words of Jesus are clear. Time and truth go hand in hand. Given enough time, the truth will come to light and their foolishness will be exposed. In the light of this reality, what's a faithful minister to do in the difficulty of last days? How about this? Rest in a sovereign promise. When Paul says they will not get very far, I submit to you that he is standing on Jesus' firm and awesome promise. And here's the promise. I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not stand against it. That is, even death, even death will not keep me from building my church. Not my death, not my people's death. Paul isn't operating from a whimsical, don't worry, be happy theology. No, regardless of how Paul labored and suffered for the welfare of the church, at the end of the day, he could lay his head down and rest believing that no matter what, Jesus will build his church. The vine continues to grow and bears fruit despite the resistance, despite the attacks. And not even the gates of Hades, he says, will have the power to overturn it. And if I can just take a short aside here at the end, you know how God usually preserves healthy churches? You might think, well, he gives us teachers and preachers. Oh, yes, that's true. But, but really on the ground level, how does he... How does he preserve us? This may surprise you. He does it through community. I want you to either turn to Ephesians 4 or just listen to me. Ephesians 4, this is what we read. Here, I'll turn there as well. Ephesians 4. And we'll start reading at um, verse 11. And he, that is Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. That's pastors and teachers. These are gifts to the church from Christ. He gave the church these men. For what purpose? Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Notice who's doing the ministry. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to, watch this, a mature man, that is the church, us together, that we grow up into a mature man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, that we as a church become just like Jesus so that we may no longer be children. Now understand here, this is community. That we all, we all 
are doing the appropriate ministry in the body so that, that's a purpose statement, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful scheming. Doesn't that sound exactly what Paul is talking about in 2 Timothy and back in 1 Timothy and in Corinthians and just about everywhere else Paul taught? Rather, rather than being cast about by the winds of doctrine, here's the cure, here's the protection. Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly and makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You know how we resist false doctrine? We do it in community, through community, by the community. Oh, my friend, if you are the kind of Christian who only shows up on Sunday morning to hear the sermon, and then you go home and have nothing else to do with the church, can I just be real clear with you? God hates that. That is not his plan for your life. You are supposed to be a part of the community of Christ. It doesn't have to be at Calvary Bible Church. It could be at any church that is serious about following Jesus, proclaiming his word and living his word. This is one of the reasons why we have small groups here. It isn't so that we can have a meal together or snacks together. Hope you're not there just for the food. We're there because there is a clear and present danger. We are there to help one another remain firm, as I read in Colossians earlier. If you continue in the faith, then you belong to him. And the author of Hebrews jumps into this and says, Brothers, day after day, you should be warning one another, encouraging one another lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is everywhere in the Bible. It's everywhere in the Bible. Beloved, we need each other. We need each other. And by the corporate strength of the community of Christ, we resist being carried away by every wind of doctrine. Here's what Mark Dever writes. Creeds, confessions, and statements of faith are useful Denominational accountability is beneficial. Sound public teaching is invaluable. But nothing safeguards the gospel like the supernatural community of faith that gospel preaching produces. My preaching, Keith's preaching in this church should produce not just heads full of mush, not just heads full of theological knowledge, but rather community of saints who meet together, who minister together, who love together, who comfort one another together, who warns each other and deals with sin. When there's comfort needed, they comfort. When there's correction, there's correction. Beloved, this is one of many reasons why we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as the author of Hebrews says. And Sunday morning should not be the only time we meet together. We're not a club. We are the body of Christ. For our own growth and protection, he wants us to be together. And so fellowship together. Be in one another's homes. Read the Bible together when you meet in one another's homes. Talk about Christ. Talk about his grace toward you. Talk about how he saved you. Talk about what he's doing for you. Pray for one another. Minister to one another. Correct one another. Love each other. That's how we preserve one another. I was in Calvary 101 this morning. And of course, I always ask, why are you here? Where were you born? How long have you been visiting Calvary? And why did you come? And I was so blessed by a few in that room, probably many in that room, who said um, two things. The doctrine. We love the teaching. We love, we've been trying to find a church that just teaches the Bible. And the second thing is, uh, there's love here. 
it is obvious that these people love one another and they have already started loving us. You know what Paul says? The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so I believe, brothers and sisters, if, if there's no love, if there's a lack of love in a congregation, the problem is here. The problem is in the pulpit. That's where it starts. Because if we're teaching and preaching properly, they're going to be loving each other. They're going to be loving each other and meeting together. I would say here at the end that if you're visiting this morning or maybe you've been here for a long time and you realize that you're really not a part of the church because you don't know Christ and all of this is radical talk to you, and I would say to you, perhaps it's the Holy Spirit. Perhaps it's the Holy Spirit is working in you calling you to repentance and unvarnished, undiluted trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. Maybe today is the day. Maybe today is the day that by God's grace you repent and believe and plead with you. Don't stay on the outside any longer. This is not an invitation to become a church member. This is a call for you to be one Become united with Christ. And so if that's you this morning, then let me encourage you, go home today and plead with God. God, if you're real, if this gospel is true, show me. Make it real to my heart. Give me the grace to believe it and change me. And he says, anyone who comes to me, I will never cast out. Let's pray. Father, we, I don't necessarily want us to walk out of here just thinking about false teachers and sinful people. I want us to be thinking about our own relationship with Christ and his word. Do we love him? Do we, as the psalmist said, meditate on his word day and night? Do we love the Father? Do we love the truth he has given us, first of all, through his Son and through the prophets. Do we love the Holy Spirit who ministers to us in 10,000 ways, most of which we're not even sensitive to? And we praise you now, Father, and we ask you to make your life more vital in us. We already have eternal life. Oh, Father, may we live in, in the good of that. May we love Jesus more as a result of our being together today than when we did before we came. Father, we entrust it, this church to your care. We love you and we praise you for it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. <laughs>